0: hello and welcome to the righteous remnant podcast if you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us you can do so at therighteousremnant.org.
1: all right good afternoon good morning good evening whatever time it is on your end i'm here again with dennis cole dennis i feel like it's been a millennium since i've seen you bro and i mean that in an amillennial sense
0: you know not in a literal sense but man it's been too long how have you it been has. man I've been great. Um, I just moved out here to Colorado, so yeah, I'm I'm uh, trying to get everything in order. So, but yeah, it's great. Like I've been having a a wonderful time. We moved into a a larger space, so I actually like. There's no kids running around. I don't know if you could tell, but uh, (laughs) there's actually more peace. I don't know. You know, on the other podcast, there were actually kids on both sides everywhere. I was commanding them to hide. So now they're actually in a completely different room, which is now amazing. you have
1: space. You have room. You can, <laughs> yeah. you can, you can wander.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Congrats, man.
1: But we miss yeah. you here in California. So, amazing, you know, Steve. it's, it's, it's not the same anymore. And and now the church is going to be woke because you're gone, bro. So I don't
0: feel like I was stopping, helping top that much. <laughs>
1: All the Wilksters are like, yes, he's gone.
0: I know. No, it's funny here is we, you know, um, we've been meeting people here um, because a lot of people are moving in here. But a a lot of people are actually moving out. We're in Colorado Springs. And one of the people that we talked to is like, oh, yeah, we can we can see that, uh, you know, all these all these liberals from California are coming. And so we're moving to Texas. And I heard one guy's moving to Florida. So it's funny because they're afraid of it here. So they're moving. They're moving to more conservative areas, too. Yeah. Gosh, man. So yeah. Californians are just Yeah, it's just leaving big. in droves and just Everyone hates wow. them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I do hear that they're yeah. driving up the real estate costs everywhere, you know, cuz yeah. there's so many of them that are leaving and they have more money, generally speaking. So, yeah. 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 You know, my my wife and I are thinking about moving out of state, and then we looked
1: into Colorado Springs as well. And yeah. you know, it went from like you know ten dollars for a three bedroom to now
0: about three million for a three bedroom. I know. Is that I true? Know. The the prices jumped. I mean, this is not just a Colorado thing. This is you know the whole housing market over the past year has gone crazy, right? So it's probably wow. partly inflation. Um, you know, lumber prices skyrocketed. So there's a number of different reasons. Um, yeah. But yeah, like a lot of people I think are hedging against, you know, uh, against the dollar, their dollar assets, they want to be invested in, you know, tangible assets like houses and real estate if you have the money for it. So a lot of people are buying property or have been for the past year. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, you know, let's let's talk about why you moved to Colorado Springs. Where are you now, man? What church are you in? You know, what are you up to there?
0: Yeah, so moved out here to join um, a ministry called Contend, and they're primarily a prayer ministry. They do um, intercessory prayer gatherings, they do a conference, annual conference, and they do these tours where they, you know, um, strengthen campus houses of prayer, which is, you know, something I've been doing as a pastor in Southern California for a long time, so it seemed like a good fit. Uh-huh. And the um, ministry here, you know, they've had a heart to um, potentially start like a local community, like a church community, so moved to help join that process and contribute to it. And I don't know. We're It was kind of funny because uh, none of us want like a traditional church, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, like it's funny. I've been um, in this non-traditional church thing for a while. But the past season of mine, I was all in the traditional church, you know. But mm-hmm. I'm kind of coming back into the charismatic prayer movement. And, yeah, it's it, none of us want like a traditional church where – You know, you just have programs and uh, primarily a Sunday service and stuff like that. you know, our heart is we want a community, we want a thriving community, um, but we want to retain um, a vibrant spirituality and not get bogged down with too much bureaucracy and programs and buildings and all that kind of stuff that I think, uh, you know, you have some experience in that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I I, I don't know what you're, this thriving
0: community, though, I've never experienced that, Yeah, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I mean, look, I'll be honest, Paul. Like, because <clears throat> you know, for the past, I don't know, six months or something like that, I haven't been churched. Um, I haven't been working at it one particular church, so I've been visiting a lot of other churches and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, it, I, I got, I got to be honest, it is so hard to find a great church. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, you know, I part of that is I'm pretty picky. You know, I'm a pastor, and so I've got a very—probably more defined vision of what I want to see in a church. Um, But I don't know. I talk to lots of people, and it just seems like it's really hard for a lot of people to find a great church, right? Yeah. And I understand part of that is, you know, it just takes time to build up great relationships. Like a great—you know, a great church life is one where you have, like, phenomenal relationships, right? And those take time to build up. So it's always hard if you're looking for a new church— You know that's difficult. It just takes time and effort and energy to build up those those relationships um, to make for a great church life. But it's more than that. It's I I feel like you know there's there's what I call like the holy trinity of like a great church, which is you know I want great worship. I want like the presence of God right where people are really going deep in worship. I want deep teaching and preaching. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't want just like you know five ways to be more loving to your neighbor. You know, like, <laughs> type of sermons. Like I want like yeah. real theology and to go deep in it. Um, but not to become like you know. Sometimes it, it seems like there's a dichotomy there, right? Where like at some churches it's all about the worship, but then the the preaching is like really shallow. Right. And at other churches it's all about the preaching. You get deep theology, but the worship is like pretty shallow. And I, I you know. Every church is different and unique, but there are these camps, right? But I want both of those things. I want both of those things, and I want just, like, a healthy, like, a healthy church, right? Where it's, like, not fake, um, but, like, the people are healthy, and they're not religious, weird, or, like, you know, there's not controlling abusive stuff going on, you know? Hmm. So, uh, finding those three elements, like, great deep worship, you know, great deep preaching, and great healthy community, like, those three elements... It just seems like it's actually pretty hard to find a lot of times.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, as for me, um, normally I kind of lean towards like the teaching, right? Yeah. If it's deep teaching, I'm cool with that. Yeah. You know, but what what what's deep worship though? Like, yeah. You know, what does that look like? Because for me, yeah. I just you know when when they play songs, it's it's between you and God, right? Yeah. Hey, God, I'm here for you, and I'm I'm worshiping you. But yeah. wh- what do you mean by deep worship?
0: Yeah, great question. So, you know, I I the primary way that I interact with God is worship. I mean, mm-hmm. I love studying scripture. I obviously love prayer and stuff like that, but worship is really like my first love. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I started in ministry being a worship leader. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because like when I worship privately on my own, like I could tell, like if I really break into the presence of God and I feel like I I I, feel like I can get to this place of worship where I feel like I don't want to leave. I just want to be there. I feel like I'm. I feel like the the reality of His manifest presence, right? The reality of His goodness. My my emotions can feel it, and like it. There's this place in worship that feels conducive to hearing the Lord, and you know I get real conviction in that place. And so I simply say that to say that as a worship leader, <clears throat> that that's something I'm very um, sensitive to. Like mm-hmm. I want to feel the presence of the Lord in worship, and if I don't feel it consistently. I'm not happy. <laughs> like, like I like for um, you know half a year. I went to this mega church in Texas called Gateway, and they're a phenomenal church, right? Like mm-hmm. when I think about great mega churches, I I tend to not like mega churches, but I think Gateway's one of the best mega churches, right? I think they're a pretty good church overall. But that being said, the worship is 15 minutes, and that drives mm. me crazy. Like I can't stand that. Like after mm. 15 minutes, I feel like I'm just starting to you know get into the presence of the Lord. And then it's over and we're going on to the message. So when I think of deep worship, I'm looking at like ministries like Bethel, Mm -hmm. right? They have great worship that that tends to be extended and people really go in. Um, Upper room, right? All of these, all of these worship ministries um, that have real anointing on their record albums. You know what I mean? The live worship albums are like really deep and people, people really encounter God. Well, it's because they have these phenomenal worship cultures where they don't, they don't see the worship as something just to get through to so you can get to the message right like it's like no like my understanding of when we gather as a church the primary purpose for the gathering of the church is the corporate worship experience yeah. because we're ministering to the lord that's the time where we're actually coming together to say god we love you we we're so thankful we yeah. want to be with you so we're actually that portion of the service is not for the people primarily it's for him and it blesses his heart. And so that's my paradigm, right? The, the sermon to me is secondary, even though obviously that's that's the part that is for me, right? So it's yeah. really important. I want to receive during that part. I want to learn. Uh, I want to be convicted. But the corporate worship part to me, I think is more important. And so that's the part that these great worship mini, um, ministries, they don't skip over, right? Like, um, like for me, if i feel the presence of the lord in worship service i just want to keep it going right and so we would have services in my old ministry where the worship really broke through i would just tell the worship to keep keep going right i trained them to keep keep it going because that's such a powerful time of ministry um yeah and i feel like god's really getting blessed you know god is is enjoying the worship and so that i don't want to rush through that part now understandably though um if you have non-christians there or people that don't know the Lord or or have a very shallow relationship with him that yeah. in some ways that's hard it's hard for them right i get yeah. that it's the same thing like if, if they were to come to a prayer meeting it's hard for them because they don't know how to you know they don't have burdens for you know these things that we're praying for and they don't have an ability to really hear from the Lord during um intercession sets and stuff like that so sure. i understand the tendency for most churches is they see sunday service as like That is the that's for non-believers or for shallow believers, and so they're going to dumb it down and make it as you know as easy to get into as possible. Which is why all these services are like they're like an hour long or an hour and a half at the most, and and you know and they're like cookie cutter and they're like you know five ways to love your neighbor because everybody can take something away from that, you know. But that's part of my problem here. I feel like what we've done is we have dumbed down these you know our churches because you know all these pastors that say oh yeah our Sunday service is for non-believers you know we have other stuff for believers but the but the reality is the Sunday service is where they're putting most of their energy most of their finances most of their concern right so the Sunday service is really their primary gathering I'm like you know uh, you can do that if you don't pay lip service to that right if you say hey Honestly, this is, this is our secret sensitive part, but our primary worship service is elsewhere. Like we do a Thursday night service or something like that where we really go deep in the presence and we put a lot of effort and energy and money into that. You know, I'm okay with churches doing that. It's just that that's so rarely the case, right? Yeah. Usually that's yeah. lip service. It's usually like, you know, oh yeah, but, but reality, that's what you care most about. Why? Because the Sunday service is where you get your numbers from and that's where your yeah. finances come in and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I hate all that, Paul. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah yeah I'm just gonna say like yeah. i it's not that I don't have compassion for uh, churches being more pastoral or mi- more evangelistic. I get that heart, but what I'm sure. saying is that we've done that at the expense of the prophetic aspect of the church that really, in my opinion, is supposed to be our primary concern, yeah. right, and what what I'm getting at there is the church exists. To worship and serve god 's interest, yes, but when we lose our ability to discern what God is really wanting or what he 's actually saying or all these things, then we could build our churches that primarily cater to people and what people want and what people are concerned with, mm-hmm. and I think that 's the trap that most American churches fall into i, I don 't say most because you know the church is so diverse, but many, especially many of the bigger ones and um and I think that 's why we're producing. So few people that have real conviction and real ability to impact the culture, right? And real, um, you know, real depth. Like, I just feel like we're a prime, like, if you take the average Christian sitting in a pew, their depth is so small that they have very little ability to influence others. They're, you know, we're just trying to keep them from being influenced by the world. (laughs) You know, it's like, yeah, you know, and... I, I, I don't want to, I don't mean to be griping um, because I actually love the church and I, I really do respect a lot of these Christians and Christian and church leaders that are trying to do their best. I just think this is more of a systemic issue. We have systemic issues in the church that have resulted in like this is really, like, look, we've got to look at this past generation and say, hey, let's be honest. We have we have um, backslid, we've seen the nation backslide from faith more than any other generation probably in our nation's history. And we've yeah. got to, we've got to take responsibility for that, right? Like, we can't go on pretending like, hey, everything's great. Churches are so great, right? No, we've got to say, look at the fruit. Okay, we are presiding over the greatest backsliding in our nation's history. Mm-hmm. And we've got to be honest and, and discern the reasons why. And a huge part of it is the way that we have changed church culture to accommodate numbers rather than build deep disciples. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a huge part of it. Yeah. Because this is the era of you know, seeker sensitive mega right? Yeah. Everybody wants to be a seeker sensitive megachurch. they you know, those are the, the pastors and the and the ministries that get all the respect, you know, and everybody wants to be like them. Oh, and man. um I I think it's so detrimental for the church, yeah. I think it's such yeah. a shallow. Um, it it just belies some of the deep fundamental problems in our church, in our in our Christian culture right now.
1: Yeah, as you, as you explain it that way, Dennis, it seems very clear right now that a lot of these services are primarily just for you know the, the seekers, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, but okay let, let, let me let me uh, become a mega church pastor real quick yeah but our goal is to get them in our goal is to get them in and we want to disciple them so then we'll have uh, these small groups where we can then disciple them and then that's when they'll start to really uh, uh, yeah. uh, grow and mature and and worship God but these Sunday services it's just for that
0: it's that we're trying to cast a big net yeah what do you what do you say to that I I'd say it, that sounds compelling but it's total foolishness hmm. and what i mean by that is this i think it was um frank bartleman frank bartleman he was one of the primary intercessors in the azusa street revival and he was bemoaning you know the state of the churches in his day and what he was talking about is that you know um what we need is the power and the presence of the lord in our churches yeah. and if we don't have that then we compensate with human effort we compensate yep. with human programs. And that's what I'm getting at. Like, the idea is, hey, we, we have to get these people in. So we have to use what works. And this is a big part of like the the church growth movement, right? We're going to be practicalists, right? We're going to use what works, what actually gets people into the church. And I'm saying, if that's how you discern, what you're going to do is you are going to sacrifice the holiness that you need to get God in the church.
1: Yes. <laughs> right?
0: Yes. Yes. And, and and this is part of the problem. Like, question, what if God doesn't want to move in our generation? And you know, we have to get we have to break that down theologically. But I'm serious. What if it's God's judgment that He doesn't want to move? He doesn't want to pour out His Spirit such that there was a revival. Because revival is the way that God moves and if we don't have revival then yes we can compensate with church growth programs and great bowling tournaments and like seeker sensitive you know programs and all this kind of stuff but you those things will not it's not the same it's a sad it's a sad shadow it's a it's a counterfeit move of god right a yeah. true move of god is an outpouring of the spirit like we see in pentecost like we see um in the revivals in church history where there's deep repentance where there's massive societal reformation and change and you can't fake that with great programs right yeah. and we have to go after the real thing yeah and the real thing requires real repentance and real holiness and and this is this is the battle because i like for me i want us to go hey Let's let's go deep into holiness so that we can have a revival core that God can pour out his spirit on. Because that's what mm-hmm. we see. For example, in the early church, you see um the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? Mm-hmm. Acts chapter five, I believe. Ananias and Sapphira they conspire to lie. It's this crazy thing. They sell their home and they give the money to the apostles to distribute because that's what God is doing. God is convicting many people to sell their possessions and give the money to the apostles and the apostles are distributing it to those in need. And so this is a beautiful, wonderful thing that's happening yeah. in the early church. But the problem is Ananias and Sapphira, they conspire and they lie about the amount, right? It's, mm. it's a ridiculous thing because mm. they're doing an amazing act of faith, but they're lying about it. And what happens is the judgment is so severe. They're killed, right? God kills both of them. And it says a great fear comes upon the church. And there's an important reason why, because the holiness was essential for God to move in the ways that he was moving, right? And it's a parallel to Joshua and Achan, right? The the new early church, it's a parallel of what happened to Israel, right? When Israel started to enter the promised land, the Lord told Joshua, consecrate the people for tomorrow, I will do wonders among you. Right. And their, and their first, you know, city in the Holy Land that they take is Jericho. And Jericho was an incredible, like a very, it, it, that, would, that would have been a very difficult, you know, um, city to capture. They didn't even have to fight a war. They just marched around the thing and they yelled. And God, you know, miraculously delivered the city into their hands. But then what happens is a man named Achan steals, right? Takes some of the treasure for himself. And what happens is the grace of God is lifted off of the Israelite community, and they're defeated by the city of Ai, which is a much smaller city, and they realize something is wrong here. The grace, God has lifted his grace off of us, and they seek the Lord, and the Lord tells them it's because of sin, there's sin that has to be dealt with, and so... um, you know, they take lots and Achan is is chosen and he confesses, I took this, and what's the punishment? He's burned with fire, his whole family. <laughs> like it's a serious oh. judgment that comes upon him. Why? Yeah. Because the holiness is necessary to see God move in the supernatural ways that he wants to move on his people. And the yeah. parallel to The New Testament community and Ananias and Sapphira is very evident, okay? And the idea is the same. When God pours out his spirit like that, he does it on a holy people. And in that context, sin matters. And so if we want to see God move in an amazing way, we have to purify. We have to consecrate ourselves. We have to give ourselves to holiness so that God could pour out his spirit on us. Okay. Yeah. And that is the biblical prescription for if you want to see a nation turned, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, right? And pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, and I'll hear from heaven and heal the land. It's the same prescription. We have to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord, right? Which is what yeah. Hebrews says. And so if we, there's two paths here. We can try and do this by man's way, where we have the best programs and the best leadership seminars and the best systems and the best events, or we can do it God's way, where we seek him wholeheartedly and we come to holiness and he pours out his spirit and we have a real revival. And to me, those are two different paths. And that's my concern. That many of the megachurch model, the secret sense of movement, it's chasing after a path that, in my opinion, is not biblically ordained. And there's a lot of good things about that path. Okay, I want to be clear. Like, look, we should be concerned with, you know, having great systems and, you know, trying to do things excellently and being pastoral. And I'm not saying that those things are unimportant. I'm saying those things have to be joined onto a model that is biblically ordained, meaning there's a reason why. The apostles and the prophets, are the foundation of the church, are put in charge of the church because the apostles and the prophets are primarily concerned about what God wants and what his mission is, right? Yeah. And yeah. then the pastors, the teachers, and the evangelists are subordinate. It's not that they're unimportant. It's that they have to be in right order so that they can do their job while preserving the integrity of saying, but our first priority is to obey God, right? We yeah. want to be concerned with what people want and need, but not at the expense of ignoring what God wants and what he wants to do. And this is the problem because so much of the church has despised prophets. Mm. Like prophets are essential because we need to hear what God is saying. But so much of the church wants nothing to do with prophecy, you know, pays lip service, right, to prophets and to prophecy. And I'm just saying- Yeah,
1: prophets are divisive, you know. Yes. they, They call out the negative. That's not cool.
0: Yeah. And the thing is I understand yeah. because the, you know what the you the worst thing are immature prophets. <laughs> you know right. like immature right. prophets are the worst yeah. because you know they're they're just prophetic enough right to say things that are deeply damaging to you, you know? Yeah. Like so yeah. I understand why a lot of churches are cynical about prophecy and are and and, and the problem is the whole prophetic movement is somewhat immature. <laughs> right? So right. I right. I get it. I understand some of these reasons but but you cannot despise prophecy. You cannot forbid prophecy. These are biblical commands, right? You're not to do it because we are tempted to despise those things. But if you do that, then what you get is you get a lot of churches that lack the power and the presence of God. And and, and I was just thinking about the state, and, and they, it results in a lot of fakery, okay? I don't want to yeah. name names. I just visited this church last week, Paul, and I'm not going to say which church, but it's a very large church. And... Mm-hmm. um. You know, I just had this sense, you know, like the worship team, they're all trained to like smile. You know, I don't know if you've seen, if you've noticed that at different churches, right? they train the worship teams, like they smile perfectly yeah. and they hold up their hands mm-hmm. in the same way. Yeah, and then, yeah. you know, the worship leader has like... The a, hats. The yeah, big there we hat. go. The white hats. You know <laughs> what I'm talking about? Yeah. And then the, uh-huh. the worship, you know, the worship team has like, you know, things that they're told to say during the worship service, like these little encouragements. And then the whole, and then the congregations are trained afterwards to say, oh, wasn't that so good? Oh, that's, it was such a blessing. And in the meantime, like there's no powerful presence of God in the service, right? Yeah, yeah. But what I'm getting at is... It's it's this religiosity, yeah. It's this fakeness, and th- that's what I mean. You can you can build a culture that you know is nice, and people look happy, and you know, I'm not I'm not saying it's totally evil, but there's no power, yeah. yeah. And the presence of God is 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 not really. That. And the people aren't really going after. They're not really pursuing it, and. Yeah. I just have seen that type of culture become so prevalent in the body. And there's just something in me that despises it. And, yeah. and again, I always want to make a, a, a distinction here. A lot of those believers are phenomenal believers. They're great believers, right? And they have a real heart. Mm-hmm. They're trying to follow God. That's not the issue. It's it's the religiosity that is a counterfeit of the real Holy Spirit and holy move of God. You know, like we need the genuine article in so many so many churches have settled for a uh an imposter, right? A religiosity that looks nice on the outside, but is lacking the substance of it. And that's that's what I'm getting at here. Like, we want the real thing. And God knows yeah. it is so hard to get. So I, I'm I'm not trying to point my fingers at just one or two churches and say, like, these churches suck. I'm trying to say as a whole. Like yeah. We're so immature at this, um, yeah. but I'm I'm just in a place where I don't want to be part of a church that isn't seriously going after the real thing. That's how yeah. that's the best way that I can put it.
1: So this COVID thing is a good thing. Because it's revealing a lot of uh, the church's um, motives, a lot of the and uh, in, in, intent, you know, and how they run their ministry. So
0: what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I do. Yeah. I, I think it's a good yeah. thing. I think it's pruning, yeah. right? I think this whole past yeah. year has been a huge pruning. Yeah. And, um, you know. Because it
1: takes away the numbers now. Yes. Nobody's going to come. Yes. No, no, no one is coming. They're scared. Yes. Right? Only, Only the true remnant who's really seeking after God will come. Yeah. So now I feel like it forces pastors to for, hey, it's all about discipleship here.
0: Yeah. Right? Well, I look, the hope is yes, the hope is that the pruning will expose some of our wrong priorities and will wake us up, you know, to do things in a more biblical manner, right? And Yeah. You know, This is hard because I'm a pastor and I know that there are believers that I know that I discipled that are struggling in this season and some are not going out to church and all this kind of stuff. I'm worried that some of my old students will be pruned in the season. And at the same time, I recognize that things like this they have to they have to happen it's the church needs to be pruned, and so i yeah. I just have compassion I don't want anybody to to walk away from the faith right or to yeah. get so jaded or you know to just let their love grow cold for God. I don't want that to happen to anybody, but at the same time, I recognize that it we have to have these times of pruning and in fact, I just feel like the Lord wouldn't have to do it if we would do it ourselves, something like that, right yeah, like if we would prune our churches diligently in the way that we're supposed to. Um, then we wouldn't have to have these, you know, external prunings that I think the Lord subjects us to. Um, But ultimately, at the end of the day, I think we should try and see that pruning in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, right? Like, Jesus is the one, John chapter 15, who says, you know, um, my father is the vine dresser. I'm the vine. My father is the vine dresser, meaning he's the one who's doing the pruning, And he cuts off every branch that bears no fruit so that those that do bear fruit will bear even more fruit, right? There's a purpose in it, and the result of it is a very good thing. Yeah.
1: Well, this is actually a great segue to what I really wanted to talk to you about today and ask you, um, you know, you you said holiness. The church must be holy for there to be a revival. And if we are to pursue holiness, we have to pursue church discipline. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes. All right? Absolutely. Now—
1: so, I wanted to ask, do you believe in church discipline, Dennis?
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, no. you know, I, I, there's, a, there's a sense where we can get really callous. Yeah. Right. And just like, yeah, like they're not real Christians. None of these people are real Christians. Get rid of them. Right. But the truth is, a lot of people, like, they want to follow the Lord. Yeah. But they're not willing to lay down their lives. Okay. Yeah. And I, I need to make some distinctions here because what I'm not talking about there is I'm not talking about they're not willing to be perfect. None of us are perfect. Right, right. Right. Like, none of us, in my opinion, are, you know, Jesus. Jesus is the only one who could say yes to anything the Father would ask. Right. Yeah. None of us are completely surrendered, meaning there's nothing that God could confront us with that we would say yes for sure with. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that there is. A, a childlike quality that we can take say father i trust you and I'm, and I'm i'm willing to surrender my life and follow you and i'm willing to be trained by you and that that is the posture of a disciple right Yeah. and that's yeah. what we're supposed to be calling people towards we should yeah. not be awarding full membership status on people who have not taken that posture and yeah there, there's this great watering down where we're trying to baptize everybody right and get everyone to say the sinner's prayer as though once you say it and, and once you get baptized boom you're part of the club i i really try and discourage that type of thinking because my understanding of baptism is that it is it is a a commitment unto death right yeah. baptism is saying i'm dead i've died To my myself, my old life, and now I live for Christ. Yeah. But that's not the way that baptism is generally viewed in much of the church, right? In much of the church, it's like it's just I believe in Jesus, right? And because I believe in Jesus, even if I've not, even if I have showed, demonstrated no serious commitment, right to um to the cause of Christ, I can still get baptized and everything. And I'm like, I I really think baptism is for those who have demonstrated right a serious discipleship in their lives right and that there has to be a process of discernment there for leaders who are baptizing and um and understand that that is it's going to be tested i see baptism as a vow of fidelity right i'm yeah. making this vow to you jesus right and then that vow will be tested just like the marriage vow is right yeah. and um and and to give people this understanding that just because you get you say the sinner's prayer and you're baptized that's no guarantee of salvation you've got to finish the race right? You've got to be true to your vow. Um, And all of that is to say, it's it's no light thing to make a commitment to Christ. And there's a difference between the person who makes that commitment in, in the right heart and with real, like counting the costs of discipleship, right? That's what Jesus says, that nobody should make a commitment to be a disciple without counting the cost. Right. Right. And um and I think if we did that, it would it would result in a much healthier culture. Now we can have a lot of people who are coming to our churches and visiting or seeking, who are in that process. Like we I, I took my daughter to um church, you know, last Sunday and they did communion. And they gave her a little communion cup and everything. And when communion was happening, she asked me, Dad, should I take this? And I, I, I said I talked to her quietly, I said, Sweetheart, um the communion is for those who've made the decision, right? To surrender their lives to the Lord, right? And they're no longer on their own, but they belong to Him now, and they've made that full commitment, right? Now, if you want to make that commitment, you know, my daughter's nine, um, then yes, we'd love to do that, and you could take the communion. But if not, and, she, and she, just said, honest, she just said, honestly, Dad, I'm not sure if I'm there right now. I said, then that's okay. Don't take it right now, okay? Mm. And the thing is, you know, like, I love my daughter. I want her to make that full commitment, but I want yeah. her to do it in truth. Right. Yeah, I want yeah. her to do it in truth. And um I I don't want her participating in I don't want her coming under the belief that she is a full disciple of Christ without being one. Yeah. Because then she's not going to experience all of the realities of being a full disciple of Christ. Yeah. But she's gonna think she is one and then she's gonna grow up and, and be like, Oh yeah, it's not it's not that great being a disciple of Christ.
1: <laughs> yeah. But that's that's so great, Dennis, that you had I mean your daughter had you to explain to her what this really means that there's a cost to all of this but we compare that to how uh you know communion is being done now how church membership is being done now and i remember my first church membership class in a uh, mega church it's literally just sitting down and we're there for an hour and a half and we kind of hear you know what what doctrines they believe and then after that you just go sign that now you're a church member of this uh Uh, You know, organization, and then they take your picture, and hey, now I'm a member. Yeah. Right. But they have no idea what it is I believe. Yeah. They have no, I mean, they don't know me. They don't know if I'm sleeping around. They don't know if I'm, you know, believing in heretical doctrines. It's just that you're there, you listen, you sign, and now you're a member.
0: Yeah. Right. So, so, I mean, that's the model that's happening now. Yeah. For sure. I mean, you know, I, 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 I joked one time, you know, there's this episode in the book of Acts where um, there's a new convert named Simon the sorcerer. Are you familiar with yeah. this story, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, he believes in Jesus, right? Like, he, he's amazed by this. He wants to follow Jesus, right? But he sees the apostle's power, and he wants the power, right? He wants the power. Like, that's what he's really after. Like, that's the true love of his heart. And the disciples discern that because he goes, can I buy this, you know? And, they, you know, they curse him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the apostle's Curse him. I believe it was Peter. And um and the the big problem today is we immediately saw someone like Simon and we're throwing up like we're we're putting on Instagram, Simon the Sorcerer comes to faith, he's saved in our ministry, right? And like, you know, we're celebrating this. But the truth is there are a lot of people who want to follow Jesus, but have not counted the cost and not made the real commitment. Right? We see it again with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler sees Jesus and believes that he's good and believes that he knows the way to eternal life. Right? And so he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't say, Look, it's so easy, all you have to do is say this prayer. Just put your faith in me, brother. Right? And you're in. Right? That's not what Jesus says. Right? He says
1: You sound like the the woke Jesus memes right now. Yeah. Have you seen those on Instagram? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah those are great woke jesus memes are national treasure bro (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry i digress keep going bro
0: yeah but that's that's not what jesus says he says you know you know the commands and he tests him and and the man says i've kept these since i was a a youth and jesus looks on it and he loves him meaning i i think he sees sincerity there right he sees sincerity there but he says one thing you lack And what's the one thing he lacked? The idol in his life. The Mm -hmm. idol of of money. And he says, you've got got to take all your possessions, sell them, give the money to the poor, then come follow me. That's the barrier. That's the idolatry that's keeping you from being a true disciple. Yeah, yeah. And he puts up this barrier. And the young young ruler goes away very saddened because he had many possessions. And, And then Jesus says, right, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. Yeah. Right? And... He's, he tests him, right? He makes him sign up for discipleship by actually making the decisions that he needs to make to die to himself, Yeah. right? And that's not something that you see generally yeah. speaking in modern Christianity. In ancient in christianity I think there there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that was standard. In the early church, that there was a requirement that many people would have to give up their possessions, sell off their possessions, and give the money to the poor before they could join the church community. Right there was yeah. this expectation that that was you know it required to be a disciple, okay and um I think that there's a lot there's something that's important there, right and what all I'm getting at is that that is so different than the than how it works today right today yeah. there's so much emphasis that it's so how easy it is to enter the kingdom right Jesus has done all the work for you, all you got to do is believe and i i I am just convinced that is a misunderstanding. That that understanding is a misunderstanding. When Christ says believe, when they talk about faith, they're not talking about just an intellectual sense. because elsewhere in the scriptures, it does say even the demons believe, right? Like they know who Jesus is. They believe in that sense, but that's not faith. That's not putting your faith in, right? To put one's faith in Christ is to give him our allegiance, right? It's to give him our allegiance. And that is... Um, how we get saved. It's it, It's not, it doesn't say that it's easy. It does say that we can't earn it. That's not the idea here. But we have mm-hmm. to give him our allegiance in truth. And um, if we do that, then we have a real Christianity. And this is the problem here. So many people are growing up in church thinking they have a real Christianity when they don't. They're still actually seekers in God's sight, right? But they're convinced that they are full-fledged disciples, but they don't experience the benefits of the kingdom. They don't experience answered prayer. They don't experience supernatural signs. They don't experience God's grace on their lives in, in miraculous ways. And they go through it for a number of years and then they go, you know, it wasn't that great. Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: okay, I, as I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying, yeah. and I'm trying to go ahead and compare it to what I've heard a lot of pastors I've had mm-hmm. talk about the gospel and discipleship. Yeah. Uh, to them, it's like a progression, right? First, we're going to talk about the gospel. It's a free gift. There's nothing you have to do. It's you just have to receive it and accept it. And then through the process of sanctification, you become that radical, you know, disciple who's willing to give up everything for for, for God.
0: Yeah.
1: But if I look at Jesus model, he starts off with, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. Yes. Exactly. In order to be a disciple. Right. Or uh, man, imagine if every membership class they talk about, okay, guys, if you want to be a member, you're going to be a disciple of Christ. And if you want to be a disciple, you must be willing to take up the cross. Let me unpack what that means. That means you must be willing to be scourged, stripped off your clothes naked, all your entrails hanging out on a cross and you will die by asphyxiation. And then they'll go ahead and break your knees if you're not going to die so that you will you will gasp your last breath. Right. If you're not willing to do that, then you can't be a disciple. How many members do you think you'll get preaching that? But that's what Jesus taught. That's what he said in the very beginning of his ministry. Yes. What changed? Why all of a sudden our pastor kind of pastors, you know, kind of switching that to like, hey, it's a free
0: gift. You don't have to do anything. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, look, our theology is influenced by our experience. Okay, and that's just honest. All of us have to be honest in that sense. And what I'm getting at here is that 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 language of free gift, Um, you know, in in church history, we went through a a Catholic period where, you know, the church controlled salvation, right? Mm -hmm. So you you had to do many works, right? And you had to get the blessing of the church in order to be saved. And that became very controlling, very legalistic, very um, abusive, because you're using it for all sorts of political ends and all this kind of stuff, right? And so you have the Reformation with Martin Luther, where Martin Luther says, hey, no, all of this is wrong, right? It's a free gift. It's not by works at all, right, according to Paul, and, um, you know, and, and it it." it We don't need you to forgive us. God forgives us. It's the priesthood of all believers. Sola Scriptura. We don't need, you know, um, church tradition per se. We just need to trust the Bible. So what I'm getting at here is I think Martin Luther um, started a reformation that was so important for the church. It was so important to fix some of these huge abuses, but... I don't think Martin Luther got everything perfectly correct. Okay, I don't yeah. think we arrived at perfect theology five hundred years ago. Right during the Reformation, all right? And what I'm what I'm getting at here is um, there are things that we I think Martin Luther did not understand. The early reformers did not understand. Like you know, the, forgive me if I'm getting too theological. Right, but I think the theology no, is kind of good. important. Right. Yeah. Um, the idea of a free gift. Okay. It implies in our culture this idea that there's no strings attached. That is not the implication in ancient cultures, okay? In ancient Jewish culture, that is not the implication. Meaning, if you receive a gift, you become indebted to the gift giver. OK, if there's a real sense of debt and that's exactly what you see in the Bible, right? In, in like Romans 12, for example, Paul says, you know, my, my brothers, by the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable act of service or the least you could do, right? This is what mm-hmm. you should do. Why? Because you were given this gift. So now there's an expectation that you you are indebted, right? Your bond servant, your slave to Christ because of the gift that you were given. And what I'm getting at is that the cultural understanding here is different Okay, so when many pastors emphasize the free nature of the gift, the idea that there's no strings attached, that is 100% false, okay? That is a lie. No, there are strings attached. The strings are heavily attached, okay? Meaning that you're given a gift, but if you're not faithful to reciprocate, then the gift is taken away, all right? And this is the part that a lot of theology, um, a lot of people don't understand theologically, right? Right? No, if you do not forgive, then you will not be forgiven, right? That's what Jesus tells his disciples, right? If you refuse to forgive, neither will your heavenly father forgive you of your sins, right? So meaning the gift is given. Now we are expected to reciprocate appropriately. And if we do not, right, then grace is cut off from our lives. That absolutely happens. That's the idea of, um, you know, pruning and all this kind of stuff. Go ahead. So what would you say to someone and say, but we we all fail? What happens mm-hmm. when we
1: fail? Does it mean that we automatic automatically lose that gift? yes, until we make it right again?
0: yes I mean, well, the, 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 the issue is the the nature of the failure okay so okay. in ancient Catholicism, there is this belief that you had to be perfect in order to go to heaven that's that was the the mechanism of salvation was perfection, okay? Mm. And the only way to become perfected was to have Jesus's blood poured over and your works or something like that, and then okay. Martin Luther came along and said, "No, you know what? It's not your works at all. It's just Jesus's blood, right? That makes you perfect." But I think the the problem, and I'm, forgive me, this is not original. I'm I'm you know t- pulling from some scholars, including guys like N.T. Wright here, right? Um, the 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 problem is in the assumption, the assumption yeah. that you have to be perfect to go to heaven. I think that's a faulty mm-hmm. assumption. Okay, the issue is not perfection. The issue the issue is allegiance. Okay. If your allegiance, if your true faith is in Christ, then you belong to him. And you can be imperfect and belong to him, right? Okay. So uh, the idea there is when we're talking about if I fail then, do I lose my salvation? No. You lose your perfection, but newsflash, you never had perfection, okay? Right, right. All right. So that that's never the issue. The question is, are you failing in terms of removing your allegiance? Okay. Okay, and that— is a real thing okay you can and There's certain acts and behaviors that would uh
1: uh reveal that you're not really a legion uh yes you know, your allegiance is not really in christ got it okay. yes you can
0: transfer your allegiance Right, yeah, yeah, and and that's the idea. You can fall into, for example, the love of money, right? Which is why Paul yeah. tells Timothy, right, beware the love of money, from the root of many kinds of evils, and because of it, oh, many have been pierced wow. through with many griefs and fallen away from the faith. Because what yeah. happens? They begin to put their trust and their allegiance more in money than in Christ. That yeah. idolatry, idolatry is the thing that gets you out of the kingdom, because you're getting yourself out of the kingdom. You're putting your mm-hmm. allegiance in something else, right? When your allegiance is firmly in Christ, you can have different flaws, right? But you receive grace and mercy for them, right? Because you belong to him. But when you put your allegiance in other things, when you have idols, okay, then, no, then your allegiance is in those things, right? You do not get the benefits of being in Christ's kingdom.
1: Yeah. And there are just so many Christians deceived then. Yes, even, even uh, you know, churches now where their allegiance are really to numbers, not really to God.
0: Sure. That, right? does, that does happen, okay? Yeah. Idolatry of ministry for sure because at yeah. the end of the day, it's like, you know, th- this is a temptation for all, all people and church leaders included, right? We like, you know, having people acknowledge us and we like the fame and we like the money and we like the power and all that kind of stuff. Those absolutely can become idols to church leaders also, yes.
1: Yeah, okay wow so let, let's let's pivot to church discipline for for a bit dennis how how can church discipline um help us become a holy church and why why have churches uh not
0: really practiced this anymore yes yeah it's a great right? question So. yeah well because they don't understand god's heart in, in judgment they don't mm-hmm. get it right now I want to be careful here because, you know, people are diverse and unique, and so I'm going to talk in generalities, but there's always exceptions, okay? But I can tell you some of the prevailing um, beliefs that result in lots of people um, erring in this in this way, in my opinion, okay? And uh, meaning, a lot of people don't know why God made the way narrow, right? Jesus said, the path is narrow that leads to life, the gate is is small, I forget the exact terminology it uses, right? And there are few that find it, right? But broad is the path that leads to destruction, why is the gate. And many go through it. Why? Why is it like that? Why couldn't God make the way wide that leads to life? Yeah. Okay? And most Christians would have preferred it that way. Right? Most Christians would have preferred it that way. Right? And most Christians don't understand. And look, this it, it's a tough one. Okay? I'll be honest, Paul. Um, I think our theology on hell matters a lot in this particular issue. Okay? Uh-oh. We're going there. I think we have to. Let's, okay? Let's do it. So... Now, to be clear here, I am personally undecided on this issue, okay? On the issue of whether hell is eternal torment or whether um, hell is an intermediate period, and then you have the lake of fire, which represents destruction, annihilation, okay? I think annihilation has a very strong biblical argument, okay? Most of the people that I know that I've, I've heard them disparage annihilationism, it's because they've never seriously studied it. Okay, yeah. I would And en- another term
1: for, for that would be conditional, conditional mortality. Conditional mortality, right. Okay, okay.
0: Yeah. I would encourage any Christians and church leaders who have never seriously studied this issue, um, you owe it to yourself to study it. And all I'm getting at there is even if it's wrong, because like I said, I'm not 100% convinced of it, but even if it's wrong— Um, there are, there's a, there's very strong biblical arguments. I'm not just talking about the moral and philosophical arguments. I think those are also very strong, but the biblical arguments, in my opinion, are extremely strong. And the reason, the only reason why I'm referencing it here is because it matters a lot. So for example, God is going to, you know, by design, send many people to hell, right? That, that seems to be the overwhelming testimony of the scriptures, Right, that most of the people who have ever lived on the earth are are not going to heaven as we understand it; that they're going to go to hell, and that's really tough because if hell is endless torment for eternity, that is, you know, the the worst thing you can conceive of, right? That's like the the most terrible thing. Like if any if any person did that, right? If somebody took my son or my daughter and tortured them for the rest of their lives, I would not. I would not jump to well they deserved it <laughs> right mm. like right like I, I would jump to that is so evil and wrong and and yet we think that god might be saying that in scripture so i understand if our belief is eternal torment um i know i, I know almost no one who would say yes i can see 100% why that's good it makes perfect sense to me and um and it's very good that he does it like that right almost yeah. no one that i know no christian believes that, but you'd have to, to be able to understand why the way is narrow. Yes, God, it's so good that you made the way narrow, and so good that most of, most people are going to hell, right? Very few Christians that I know can say that. Now, that being said, if you believe, if, if annihilationism is true, if conditional mortality is true, it makes much better logical sense, okay? So we're getting away from the biblical argument here. We're just talking about a logical perspective. From a logical perspective, I think it makes perfect sense, right? The idea being that this life is a test. Right, and it's designed in such a way that most people are not going to pass the test, and will be yeah. annihilated, and will miss out on the opportunity for eternal life. Okay, mm-hmm. and um, to do justice to the annihilationist perspective, um, it it also you know in that perspective there there is also punishment. So evil people can be punished by God for you know for everything short of eternity, I guess, right? Like you could be punished for a billion years potentially in the annihilationist yeah. perspective before you're thrown into the lake of fire. But it's and not, it's not, yeah, it's not
1: eternal. It's right. not forever. Yeah, okay. There's still, there's still torment. There's still punishment. You're still in hell. Right. But there's a, an end date to that. Okay. Right.
0: Okay, so got it. Um. The, the reason why I bring this up is because I think it makes much better logical sense here, right? If annihilationism mm-hmm. is true, then what you have is, this life is a test. It makes sense why God has designed it in such a way that the vast majority are not going to make it into life, right? Because it's a test of generations, okay? Mm. It's not just a test of individuals, which we in the West tend to think of it as, right? Um, but no, this is what Romans 1 talks about, right? That the—our the, 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 the ancestors—this is what how I interpret Romans 1. Romans 1, our ancestors— uh, did not consider the knowledge of God valuable enough to be held onto, but they worshiped created beings. Speaking of um, the gods, right? The angels, as we want to put it, right? The spiritual beings, they worshiped them. And um, and so God gave them over to their sinful passions. He cut them off from the knowledge of God. He cut them off from the opportunity to know him and to receive eternal life, right? But eternal life has been brought back to the nations through the gospel. The knowledge of God, the way to eternal life has been brought back through Christ. And so the idea here is all those individuals who miss out on the opportunity for eternal life, who never hear the gospel, right? Well they're they're suffering the fate of their ancestors, rejection, right? Mm, of God. Okay. And 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 that's how it also works here, meaning that Many Christians, or many people today, Americans, let's say, 21st century Americans, well, they've heard of the gospel, but they've never experienced God, they, they, you know, they but God holds them responsible to what? The revelation of their ancestors, right? Okay. So in the same way, when we when we read um, the history of Israel, well, you have these generations, like, say you were born in the reign of King Manasseh, who was super okay. evil and led the nation to idolatry, right? Well, God is condemning you for the idolatry, but that's all you've known, Right? You didn't live in a period where everybody worshipped Yahweh, right, and followed him faithfully. Like right? in a lot of those periods, it seems like they even lost the law. They didn't even know where the book of, you know, where Moses was or like where the law of Moses was. They didn't even know about it, right? Josiah, when they when they discover, you know, the the Mosaic Law, he's like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> like right, we've gotten so far from this. But imagine if you were living in that time period, you never had access to all that information or knowledge, and yet God still condemns you. Why? Because your your ancestors were charged with passing down the knowledge of God to you, right? Mm. The, that is a huge part of this test. It's a test of generations. So those who receive knowledge of God and then faithfully pass it down to their ancestors are blessed. There's this chain of blessing that carries on through the generations, okay? So what I'm getting at is from this perspective, I think it makes much more sense, Right? Okay. God is testing the families of the earth, right? The races, the ethnicities, the generations, right? Their receptivity to the gospel, their um, how well they retain the knowledge of God, how well they pass down wisdom to generation to generation, and that's represented in how many people our Christians, are strong Christians, right, through the generations, and they'll be represented in eternity, meaning they'll have m- many people in eternity, and those people groups that despise the knowledge of God, that did not pass down the knowledge of God faithfully, will they'll have relatively few in eternity, right, because they'll all be wiped out, they'll all be annihilated, okay? Okay. So, from that perspective, it makes sense to me, right, Okay. The way is narrow. God has designed it that this way. He has made the test of life very difficult and hard, why so that right only the worthy enter. And again, this is uh, we have to get back into theology because so much Reformation theology is about how nobody's worthy and nobody you know can do anything good. And so it's a one hundred percent a gift from God, and He does all the work, and you do none of the work. I really think that's that's not true. Okay. Um, none of us are worthy in the sense that we were all cut off from the knowledge of god because of adam's sin and then the sins of subsequent generations right sure. so we were cut off and we shared in the unworthiness right of we have no way of saving ourselves okay yeah but once the gospel is preached to us well, now we have the way so and it's designed in such a way that it's good news to the poor right the poor yeah. in spirit the the humble right, have a greater receptivity to the gospel, and that's how it's designed, right? It's mm-hmm. designed in such a way. And, you know, there are many scriptures that speak about these types of dynamics. Um, and so all that I'm getting at here is that there's a real opportunity, right, to come to Christ, right, and to receive the gospel, but it's a real test that we're in, and the way is narrow. And, and the point here is, to bring it back full circle, is that um, we're not supposed to make the way larger, <laughs> right like yeah, yeah. as church leaders mm-hmm. it's not our job to say you know what we wish god had made the way larger and so we're going to make it as large as possible and i think in doing so what we do is we confuse the path to life right so that even it makes it harder to discern and to find and to walk in the path of life and mm-hmm. that's what many of our churches have done we want that path to be as broad as possible because we don't understand why god's made it narrow and so yeah. we're just like let's just let's try and get everybody saved you know rick warren's like you know you can get anyone saved if you can find the keys to their heart right some people love fitness and if you put fitness you know do you do fitness programs for your church well they'll come to faith and you know like it's like we have we we have this mentality where we can sure bring more people to faith than we really can not understanding the purpose of the testing for this age
1: yeah yeah. So there, there's that when it comes to the evangel, uh, um, drawing people in, mm-hmm. right. Uh, they, they cast a wide net, bring everybody in. How does this apply to church discipline? Yes. And you know, so why, why are pastors then not, I mean, I guess, I mean, it kind of answers it too, because church discipline is that you're, you're pruning and you're, um, I'm going to use the word here, excommunicating those who claim to be Christians, yes.
0: but are living in sin and not really living in the truth. Yes. So uh, well, it's the same Talk idea. About, like, it's the same yeah, idea, yeah. right? If we're if we're calling everybody saved, who's and and, yeah. and a lot of those people are not saved, right? Mm-hmm. Then, on what grounds do we cast somebody out? You know, like, yes, yeah, right. The idea here is that there's a narrow path, and the people that are on it, mm-hmm. we're supposed to encourage and help and you know strengthen them as they walk on it, right? But yeah. once they depart from the path of life, yeah. You're not supposed to, you know, pretend that they're still on the path. That is yeah. that is doing them a misservice. and not only that, it's 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 hurting all those people that are on the path of life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because, you know, th- this is the idea of the of the tree or the the vine that needs to be pruned because the resources are going to all of these people that are bearing no fruit. Yeah. Right? And if all these resources and and look, I talk with Christian leaders all the time, pastors and all this kind of stuff. What I always tell you know, you know, leaders in the church to do is you have to prioritize good soil, right? Because you're going to downright, you're going to kill yourself trying to make make people who aren't attached to the vine of Christ bear fruit. <laughs> yeah. right like man you will you drive yourself into the grave those are the people look just being honest that complain the most to churches right they're the people that like don't want to do acts of real faith right because they 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 don't have faith <laughs> you know like yeah. and if you're treating them like you're they're your sheep it'll tire you out it will it will make it miserable and and this is a huge problem in the church because we don't know how to discern what it is that god's actually asking us to do and so a lot of ministry just becomes oh, we're just supposed to help people well that is right. that's a never ending game of like there's always more people that need your help <laughs> Welcome to TED Talk. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, and I know, yeah. like, so many Christian leaders are, just are on cycles of burnout. They just go through cycles of burnout over and yeah. over and over and over again, because they don't know how to discern what's God actually telling you and leading you to do. You know, Jesus said that I only do that which I see my father doing, right? He went to Nazareth, and they're like, you know, teacher, do the miracles that you did at Bethsaida, you know, do the miracles that you did. there. And then he tells them this really interesting story. He says, you know, Elijah was only sent to the the gentile widow, right? And you know, and and he's trying to say this that God does not want to do miracles for you because even if you call yourself his people, but you don't have faith, he he doesn't feel an obligation to do works for you. No, he'll rather send his servants to people who have faith but may not be, you know, part of your community, your crowd, right? Yeah. And yeah. and and this is the idea here. Like, there's many people that think they're Christians, or that think they belong in the church, or even think they should be leaders in the church. They have no business being in the church. They have no business mm. being leaders in the church. And yeah. as leaders, we should not be accommodating those people. We should be condemning those people. And to be clear, that is biblical, right? Like Jesus condemned the Pharisees that considered themselves, you know, the people of God. Not only the people of God, but leaders amongst the people of God. And yet Jesus is condemning them and exposing them saying you're not you think you're children of abraham but you're children of the devil right and that's so mean yes it's very mean but those (laughs) that's the precise place for meanness okay now to be clear i think god is gentle with the humble right yes but he opposes the proud so when we're dealing with immature believers who have genuine faith we should not be mean to them All right? Right. We should be gentle, we should be loving, we should be patient. We're talking about immature believers who are genuinely trying to seek the Lord, but they're just dealing with all of their immaturity. Yeah, so when I first looked into
1: church discipline and how to deal with someone who's claiming to be Christian but is living in sin, uh, you know, you go to 1 Corinthians 5, uh, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 5, and the example that Paul gives us is pretty harsh, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? So if, here, here, let let me jump to that real quick. Here we go, here we go. So 1 Corinthians 5.11. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. Yes. So you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a Christian, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such people.
0: Yeah. We're not practicing
1: that. that today, though. It's almost as if, you know, hey, don't call them out in their sin. So, so I I work for a church where um I found out that there was a volunteer there, a member who was a lesbian and who was about to get married yeah. to her partner. Yeah. And everyone in that church, or at least the, the group that she's with, knew but didn't want to approach her because it seemed unloving. Yes. So We've fallen away from church discipline. And so wh- where did this, uh, you know, spirit uh, come from?
0: Well, look, what we have to say is uh, if, if the elders of the church fail to discipline in those circumstances, they're in sin. Yes. Mm-hmm. They are in sin. They are in sin. Okay? Mm-hmm. Because they're commanded. That's their job. The job of elders is to discipline the church. Okay? Yeah. So if they're not doing if they refuse to do it, they're in sin. They are rebelling against God's commands. OK, now I I want to be somewhat generous here because the, you do have good elders that are they're trying to be obedient. They just don't know. They don't. They don't. They're like, I just Lord, I don't understand how that can be your command. So, mm-hmm. Father, if you could help me understand why that's right, mm-hmm. you know, then I would I would obey it. Right. And I want to have yeah. mercy for elders that are in that position. Um, But, but it's still sin. Okay, but that's a more a sin of, of of ignorance rather than outright rebellion. Does that make sense? Right. There right. are elders that are just like you know I I just don't think that that you know we don't have to obey that and that's rebellion. Okay, so um, yeah, it, again, it has to do with the fear of the Lord. Okay, the fear of the Lord is to understand the goodness of His judgments. All right, the fear of the Lord is to honor. His wisdom above our own wisdom. And this is the problem, that so much of the church has become corrupted by a worldly definition of love, okay? God's love is not so great that he does not punish or condemn or discipline people, all right? But when you adopt a definition of love that has no place for discipline and correction and even condemnation... You're departing from God's definition of love, all right? God is not loving in that sense. He does condemn people. He does warn them. He gives people time to repent, and then he throws down the hammer, okay? So loving God in his judgments is actually so important, and there's so many scriptures about this, right? I want to say like Psalm 98, I I think, um, it talks about, right, um, the earth rejoices because the judgments of God are coming right and the coming judgment of the lord is one of the main themes of the new testament right mm-hmm. we warn people are you know we we beseech them be reconciled to god because all of us must stand before the judgment seat of christ and so what i'm getting at here is that the the fear of the lord is such a neglected truth in the church today yeah. It's such a neglected truth, all right? Yeah. And because we have not honored that, it says the, the wisdom is built upon a foundation of the fear of the Lord, right? Mm-hmm. So if you depart from the fear of the Lord, you will depart from wisdom. And that's what's happened to a lot of these churches. They are becoming heretical churches, okay? Yeah. They are becoming heretical because they refuse to honor the fear of the Lord because it's not popular, All right. It's become unpopular in our culture today, but they are being deceived and they're compromising in serious ways. These are not small compromises. Okay. These are large compromises when church elders refuse to discipline in these ways. It's it's a huge compromise because it corrupts the whole church. So can you walk us through the
1: proper way of practicing church discipline? So let's say someone's in sin. Okay. Uh, what are you supposed to do? So for yes. those who have never heard of church discipline before, what are the steps?
0: Yes, great question. Okay, I think it's outlined mm-hmm. in Matthew 18. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, and before we jump into this th- the three step process, we have to make a distinction between practicing sin and struggling with sin. Okay, I think Got that's it. an important distinction. Okay, that scripture makes, right? The idea yeah. that if anybody stumbles in sin, there's mercy for you. Okay, you yeah. do have to confess and repent of your sin. Like, that's an important process. You can't skip over that, all right? Yeah. You've got to repent of your sin, but if you repent of your sin, forgiveness is available for you, all right? And and look, you, you see this, uh, Jesus tells um, his disciples, how many times should you forgive your brother who sins against you, right? And he says, seven times, right? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven, right? Mm-hmm. And that is a reference to um, uh, Daniel, um, 77s of Daniel, right, right? Um, that's how much God forgave Israel until he brought judgment, okay? Mm-hmm. But the idea here is that you got to forgive him a lot. He says, even if he sins against you seven times in the same day, you must forgive him every time if he comes and repents to you. Mm. And the reason why, why God is giving us that standard is because that's the standard he, forgi- he uses to forgive us, right? Yeah. He will forgive us seven times in the same day, <laughs> right, yeah. if we will come and repent. All right? Amen. That's so gracious, right? But what he will not forgive is unrepentance. Yes. All right? He won't forgive that. All right? If we— The
1: obstinate. Yes. Yeah, okay.
0: If we sin, but we refuse to call it sin, Mm. and we say, you know what? It's not wrong, and I'm going to keep doing it. He doesn't forgive that. There's no forgiveness for that. if There's not repentance. Okay? So if you have a member of your church who is practicing sin, and they will not repent— all right, that this is what you do. You see somebody who's committed a sin, okay? You confront them. Okay? Mm-hmm. So say like, you know, you see somebody they got drunk and they posted pictures of it on Instagram or something like that. And they're drunk, they're clearly drunk. Okay? Yeah. Well, you confront them. All right, say, "Hey, you you did this. This is this is sinful. According to scripture, you show them the passages. You say, "I love you, and so I want you to repent of this." And if they repent, good, you've won your brother. But if they refuse, then what do you do? You bring another believer with you, okay? And the two of you confront this brother or sister. You say, hey, we have seen this. We see the sin, and you have to repent of this. And if you don't, right, then we're going to bring it before the church, right? And that's the last step. If they refuse to repent, even when two people come together combined, then you bring it to the elders of the church, right? And the elders of the church— are then to confront that person, and if they won't repent, then you put them out of the church. You excommunicate them. You do not fellowship with them. They are not a believer. Not only are they not a believer, now they're in the camp of false teacher, right? Wow. Right? Because they still claim to be a believer, but they're practicing sin, and now that teaching has the potential to corrupt the body. Mm-hmm. So that's why you'd have nothing to do with them. All right? Yeah. And you put them out of the church. Don't have anything to do with them okay? They're, they're false teachers. The harshest words in the New Testament are for false teachers, okay? If you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, it's all about false teachers, all right? Those who preach grace as a license for sin, Jude talks about this also, right? Like, no, no, God does not give grace to the unrepentant, all right? That is a false teaching, and now it corrupts the church because it brings sin into the church. It makes it, normalizes sin, yeah. And what that does, the normalization of, of sin in the church removes the grace of God from the church, okay? Yeah. It removes the power and the presence from the, uh, of the Lord from his own people, okay? That's why it's so toxic, it's so evil, and it must be dealt with firmly. So that episode that you see in 1 Corinthians 5, that's Paul dealing with an issue uh, where somebody's sleeping with his um, mother-in-law. Step, yeah, right? stepmom or something, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Um, Paul says, and you're proud of this, that you've, been, you, that you've shown grace to him. Meaning, they're saying, "Hey, we're trying to be gracious to this person." And Paul's saying, "This is not the time for grace. This is the time for harshness. You should not be proud of this, right? You should have put him out of your fellowship." As for this person, I have passed judgment on already. I've handed him over to Satan. Okay, meaning I have rejected him from the protection and fellowship of the church, right? I've handed him over to be, to be, um, uh, you know, tormented, right, or persecuted, or you know, all this stuff. Given him over to the power of Satan. Why? In the hopes that he will truly repent. Okay. All right? So that he can be saved on the day of judgment, all right, if he yeah. truly repents.
1: Yeah. Well, let me be devil's advocate for a bit here. Yeah. Sleeping with your mother-in-law or stepmom, yeah, that's pretty bad. But there's—what about the smaller sins? I mean, does it have—is it all sins? Yeah. You that's know, or is it, is it just the big sins? I mean, what do you do?
0: Yeah. Well, Scripture does talk about sins that lead to death, all right? John. Mm-hmm. Makes that distinction. There are sins that lead to death, and sins that do not lead to death. Okay, mm-hmm. and I think that there, I think there is room for that. Okay, so we're getting this is you know somewhat speculative. It's not uh, totally nailed down, but a lot of this stuff is there's there's no agreed upon consensus in a lot of stuff that we're talking about, right? But okay. yeah, I think if we're talking about you know certain sins, I think there's more grace for them. And look, this is the way everyone functions. Okay, like if you if you have a spouse and your spouse lies about eating cookies, right? It's not like, divorce, right? They keep lying about it, right? Divorce, you know. But that's a different thing from them lying about sleeping with other people. Or they watched a Netflix episode
1: without the other spouse (laughs) and lied about it. Hey, man,
0: that's an unforgivable sin. (laughs) Yeah, right. I don't know know about you, bro. So we all make (laughs) distinctions between bigger and lesser sins, right, in our normal lives. That's just like, like, you'd be crazy not to do that. Right? Well, yeah, yeah. I, I think God works the same way. Okay? I think God works the same way. I think there are major versus minor sins and there's all and, and there's stereo, there's all degrees in between and everything. So yeah, I think it's up to the church elders to discern whether this is a major issue and it requires, you know, them to be put out of the church. Um I think that there are, you know, if if we're talking about, you know, this person keeps, you know, I don't know. Like the the person won't leave like when prayer time's over and where we need to use the room for other places, but they keep staying and they just want to pray all the time, you know, like kick them out, excommunicate them, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like we have to make some kind of a distinction, right, you know, right. between yeah. like major and you minor don't want to be a Pharisee here.
1: about this. Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah, for Sure.
0: Um, but yeah, a lot of these things, especially when we're talking about sexual sin, that is the one that is highlighted many times, right. In the new sure. Testament, right. When somebody is committing sexual sin, they're not repenting. They keep doing it over and over again. Um, Put them out, out. Put them out. Put them out. So what about believing in, in
1: heretical doctrines? You know, because you have you have, yes. uh, let's say, some of the reform that if you're an Arminian, then you are not you, you're committing the unforgivable sin here of not believing in elections, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, just the stuff like that. Right. I mean, how do you discern that? For sure. What are you supposed to do?
0: For sure. Yeah. I mean, heretical beliefs are 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 real. Right, like if you're teaching that you know Jesus is not the Son of God or something like that, right? You're 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 teaching something that is a major doctrine, and you're preaching against it. I think there's grounds for removal, right? Um, Now, the problem here is that it's hard to discern what's major and minor. Exactly, and that's I, I feel like everybody are.
1: Anything there's there's the the essentials right, and then there's the secondary, the tertiary doctrines. Yep. They're bringing a lot of those secondary and tertiary and putting it into the primary. For sure, that this is all salvific. For sure, you know, and I think that's the reason why there's so much disunity with Christians right now, right? Yeah. The cessationists, some some of the hardcore cessations are saying that if you believe that there's tongues today, you're 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 blaspheming against God. Yep. You know, so I know. You know, how how are we
0: to navigate this? I mean, there's. <sighs> Prophecy <laughs> yeah like look there's there's biblical instruction given to us, right, yeah, the Bible is our our chief source of understanding about God's will, all right, so yeah. we try and discern according to the Bible, but the bible talk can't talk about everything or it would be like a million pages long, right and right. um so what's given to us outside of the Bible for instruction from the Lord is prophecy, right, mm-hmm. and the truth is we are pretty immature in prophecy as a whole, I think we should admit. And so this is why we're struggling with this, okay? we got to do as best as we can. We are going to be judged, right? but look, on my end, I just try and put the majors where the majors are, according to, to the Bible, and I try and put the minors where the minors are, according to the Bible, as best as I can. But, you know, I think most pastors are trying to do similarly, and we're going to disagree about what's major and what's minor, and we're all going to find out on the Day of Judgment, you know, what was, okay. what was real and what was not. And, um, until then, I pray this all the time, Lord, be merciful to me. <laughs> you know, like yeah. God says, you know, He's he gives mercy to the merciful, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm asking the Lord for mercy, you know, in the areas where I'm wrong. And I ask the Lord, correct me. See if there be any wayward way in me, Lord, so that I will not persist if I'm drawing those lines in wrong places. Um, but yeah, my understanding of the judgment is that we're going to be rewarded for where we were right. And our, our teachings and our efforts bore good fruit. And um, we're going to suffer loss in the areas where we sinned, um, and some of those sins are going to be like, Lord, I thought I was doing your will, right? And I, I tend to think that God is more gracious, right? If, you know, we think we're doing his will, but we're deceived in those areas, um, I do think he, he gives us grace. We said with Paul, right? Mm-hmm. Paul says, the Lord showed me mercy because I, I acted in ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, a, that's a fascinating passage that um, I don't think the Calvinists have a good explanation for, in my opinion. But yeah, it makes perfect sense to me, right? That, um, you know, Paul thought he was he was serving Yahweh when mm-hmm. he was Saul, right? He thought he was doing God's will in persecuting the church, mm-hmm. and that that was one of the reasons why God showed mercy to him, right? And gave him revelation um, about who Jesus really was, and he repented, okay? Got it. Okay.
1: One last question on this, then. Mm-hmm. Right, we're talking about doctrines or um, holding on to false uh, beliefs about the gospel and things like that. How are we to deal with wokeism in the church now, though?
0: Mm -hmm. For sure. I mean, wokeism. I, you know, there's degrees of wokeism, right? Right. Um, But absolutely, it it is. uh, It's a different worldview. It's a different kingdom, in my opinion. It's it's a Marxist doctrine, which is. a subdivision of humanism okay so right. in my opinion yeah you keep getting more and more into the woke critical theory stuff yeah it's going to lead you out of the kingdom and I, and look i saw that um when i was you know in intervarsity as a as a college freshman and intervarsity has an amazing historical tradition okay they're a phenomenal um Christian fellowship had a huge influence in the student volunteer missions movement in the early 20th century. So they've done a lot of great things for the Lord. Um, But when I was part of the Berkeley chapter as a young, young college freshman, they were getting all into social justice stuff, right? So I was dealing with this 20 years ago there and it never, it it rubbed me the wrong way, but I didn't have, you know, the, the theology to understand why it was rubbed me the wrong way. Right. But it just seemed like they wanted to emphasize more, you know, um, issues of poverty than issues of sin right? Hmm. And, um, fast forward 20 years to today and I can see the more mature version. You know, what happened to our chapter at Berkeley was it got more and more into the social justice stuff to the point where InterVarsity National had to release a statement saying that if you're openly gay, we would like you to step down from serving on staff at InterVarsity Campus Fellowships. Now, thank God the national, um, leadership made that judgment, right? Hmm. Um, But when they did, it caused lots of the, um, you know, coastal chapters to implode. And the Berkeley chapter totally imploded. It was like one of the largest fellowships on campus um, at the time. And then it just imploded because they had openly gay staff serving and they had been teaching for a long time that that's fine and there's no problem with that. And they're, you know, they're oppressed people group and we need to love them and all this kind of stuff. I'm telling you, I've seen, I've seen a lot of Christians go down that path where you know, the more you start getting into the social justice stuff, the gay issue is the one that becomes the dividing line. Because who are gay people? Are they an oppressed people group? Are we, Mm -hmm. are they being persecuted by Christians, right, because we're not loving them or because we're saying that homosexuality is sinful? That becomes Mm -hmm. a dividing line because it becomes a question about the authority of Scripture. Um, And I've seen a lot of Christians who get into that worldview right they start believing all the stuff about worldly oppression and stuff like that all of that is pulling them away from a biblical worldview okay mm-hmm. the biblical worldview is that all humans are oppressed by spiritual powers and we're set free when we come to Christ because we're coming into his spiritual kingdom okay the 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 Marxist worldview is that you know if you're a black Christian you're still oppressed <laughs> you know like if you're a gay Christian you could still be oppressed and, yeah. and the answer is uh, that's not a biblical so- worldview
1: so so they're teaching something that's antithetical to Christianity. So are they false
0: teachers? Yeah, it can get to that place,
1: right? Like, I, I, think- I mean, when, when do we discern and start calling it as it is and, and basically practice church tripl- discipline and say, hey, dude, hey, I can't even eat with you, man. You're, you're you, you know, I'm genuinely asking this. Yes, yes. Hey, you're, okay. you're preaching a different gospel here. Yes. You're leading people astray. Yes. Like repent or you're going to go to hell. When, when do we get to that?
0: I think it's when they compromise on some of these biblical issues like um, homosexuality. That is the point where, like, if somebody says homosexuality is not sinful, or it might be sinful, but you can do it and you don't need to repent. You can be an upstanding member of our community. I think those, are, those are lines. And I, I, my heart here is not to say that homosexuality is, is such a greater sin, than some, but it's a, it's a clear dividing line. That's why, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's the line where you're saying, hey, um, I bought into this worldview more than the biblical worldview. Right, and that to me is is a, a pretty obvious place to draw that line.
1: What about critical race theory? What if they are a staunch supporter of critical race theory? Is that does that warrant a um, you know admonition?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it, it, the thing is, you're you're not going to find most Christians saying I'm a staunch supporter of critical race theory. They're not going to word it like that, right? Conservatives yeah. use that terminology to, you know, label that philosophy and all this kind of stuff. But if you're a believer in that philosophy, you don't generally do it that way. You just believe, like, you believe strongly in systemic oppression, racism, and Mm -hmm. you're devoted to stopping it. Now, that being said, I think there are a lot of genuine Christians that believe that, right? A lot of genuine Christians. And um, I I would not put them out of fellowship yet. But like I said, when they start getting in, like, the the issue of, of homosexuality, to me, is a big one, right? Because... In my experience, those things have become, they're tied together, right? Mm -hmm. Oppressed people groups, right? Once you start seeing gay people and black people and all these people as oppressed people groups, it becomes harder and harder to justify why it's sinful and why we should put them out of fellowship and things like that. Okay? Got it. And and yeah. and that and that's what I mean. So that, to me, is is the dividing line. I'm not saying that's the perfect dividing line. I'm just saying that that is a pretty good one, I think, in, in terms of our culture and where we should start dividing. Um, but I warn—look, I, I warn a lot of believers when they start really getting into the woke stuff and the social justice stuff. I warn them and say, hey, look, because I've seen lots of people um, go down this path, where it just yeah, starts with, yeah. hey, we're going to care about the, the poor, and how come the church doesn't care about the poor enough? to, hey, we need to stand up for systemic injustice, right? And that's always a, a, a st- another step where I'm like, hey, wait a second, right? Now mm-hmm. you're getting into a different worldview, right? Like I can understand caring about the poor, but when you care more about poverty than you do about eternal condemnation, we're already entering into a different worldview, right? Yeah. When we care about worldly injustice in the sense of different um, social economic groups, stuff like that, you care about that more than you care about where somebody's gonna spend their eternal destiny, I think you're already entering into a different worldview, right? So there you, you, go. you yeah. keep going down that path, and, and now you're at the place where it's like, you know, I don't feel comfortable saying that homosexuality is sin out loud, right? Yeah. I don't feel comfortable saying that, right? Because, yeah. you know, even though I privately believe it's sinful, um, you know, I want to love those people. Well, I, well, let me tell you, Jesus and all the apostles, they publicly call out sin. And there's a yeah. reason why they do that, okay? Because they believe it's sinful. What you're actually yeah. communicating is that you don't really believe it's sinful, you don't really believe it's wrong, okay? And I'm telling you, that's all part of this downward spiral, this slippery slope. And you know, I don't, yeah. I don't really like using that term, slippery slope, but it, it, it's a real phenomenon, right? And you do see you're going deeper into that worldview, and then yeah, 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 and then you get it, get to that place, and it,
1: it, it, they may not um, admit that they're critical race theorists, right? But they'd say things like, you know, you have to uh, uh, if you're white ask for forgiveness from what your ancestors did so basically that's that's critical race theory for sure if you're white you're sinful from what your ancestors did basically i mean that's for sure man dude you're you're accusing the brethren now like just because he's white now he's racist and all these things so you know what i mean like does that warrant admonition now or were we hey dude you you better stop that don't say it like that because if you continue down that route that's 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 sin yeah and if you continue to persist in that then we're
0: gonna have to yeah, You know, just what I'm, I'm seeing in 1 Corinthians. What yeah. do you think? I mean, I, yeah, I, I understand the tension that you feel, because I feel the same tension, right? Yeah. Like, I feel like, hey, if somebody's preaching that actively, yeah. I'm going to guess that they're not a real believer. That would be my guess, okay? Yeah. But that being said, I want to be gracious and generous because I'm not sure. Sure. Right? The What I really don't want to do is I don't want to condemn anyone that really does belong to the Lord, Um. But that being said, yeah, teaching preaching against that teaching, I do that very strongly, right? Hey, yeah, that yeah, teaching yeah. is not biblical. it's not of the kingdom of Christ, and if you believe that, it will lead you astray, right? So I will yeah. teach strongly against that teaching, but I personally i'm I, I try to be slow to condemn an individual believer unless they get to that place where they are openly calling for people to practice sin again, that's because yeah. i that's where I see the Bible condemning. Right, that's where they're calling them false teachers. Oftentimes, is yeah. when they start condoning sin. Got it. Got it. You know what? I wish we had the early
1: church councils. Yeah. Go back to the early church and have councils to kind of just really just decide on these matters. This is what it is. You know what yeah. I mean? I, you know, well that Francis, yeah, go ahead, go
0: ahead. That they're supposed to be councils. Yeah. Yeah. Let's bring it back. Yeah. I, think I it's mean, that's what
1: the Orthodox Church got right. You know what I mean?
0: So. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it, yeah. Th- that's part of the fruit of the, the Reformation, right? The Reformation yeah. split us all into camps of minor doctrine. And, um, yeah, you know, to be clear, I think the Reformation as a whole was a very good thing, but it wasn't mm. a perfect thing, and that yeah. was one of the bad fruits. So I have great hope that we are now reuniting, you know, in the right yes. way. Um, and I think there will be the establishment of councils, of councils um, that speak for large groups of wow. believers. Um but, but obviously we're not there yet. We're still in the midst of like a, a million different tribes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, D that's all the questions I have for you, man. You know, I, I hope I'm not annoying and peppering you with all these questions, no, but those are you great. know, in our next episode, there's going to be another million. Cause I really want to talk about unity. Yeah. Unity in the church. Yeah. And then that's my heart. Like I want the church to be united now. Yeah. All these different tribes and denominations. I don't think that pleases God. Yeah. You know, um, um, you know, we can we can we can have uh, differences in secondary or tertiary doctrines, but I think the church needs to unite now. And uh, but yeah, so I want I want to pick your brain on that, and uh, I look forward to our next talk, man. And thank you for for answering all my questions today. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. Well, it's, it's great and it's a super important topic. So, hey, Pauls, we um, close here today, Do you mind if I just pray? Because I feel like yeah, you know, we're talking about issues that are so important in the church. Um, yes. Father, we just um, come before you and, Lord, we just say we love the church. We love the church. Amen. Yeah, yes. Father, we just ask that you would heal um, these issues that we've talked about, Lord, these issues of um, lacking church discipline. I, mm-hmm. Father, I just pray that you would give us the fear of the Lord. Yes, Lord. Lord, that we would recognize the goodness of your discipline, recognize the goodness of your judgments. Recognize the goodness of um, even your condemnation, Father God, that when you condemn sin, you do it out of love, Lord God. Father, I pray that you would give us your definition of love as a church. And Lord, we pray for all those churches that are struggling with these very things, Lord God. And Lord, I pray um, those that are in that place of decision, Lord, I pray that you give them wisdom and discernment to be able to be obedient to you and your spirit, to pursue holiness and righteousness. And, Father, we do ask for an outpouring of your spirit, a genuine, real revival that would bring reformation to the nation, that would usher in many um, souls into the kingdom, Lord God. That's our desire. So we say thank you, and we love you. Continue to guide us and lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, Paul.
1: You're welcome. Thank you, brother.